and choose stories we like from Exodus. They show the one where God conquers the bad, stories about, that tell about ourselves and the salvation we receive instead of telling the overall story of God. Are these really stories about us? Are we really the oppressed? Are we the ones depending on God for liberation and salvation? What would it feel like to really read this book with those kinds of realities? When we look at Exodus as a story primarily about God instead of about the oppressed, we get this uneasy feeling that we may be looking at something that we don't quite comprehend, something that we don't want to see, let alone something we don't want to be connected to. And heaven forbid, something we don't want to see in ourselves. The reality of a group of people who continually failed to put their trust in God. And one theme that comes through the story of Exodus is that God keeps his promise to God's people. Unlike any of the other gods that they tried to worship, God hears the moans and the groans of the people more than any other god, and God saves this motley crew despite their unfaithfulness. The radical message of the scripture is that God's love is for all people, and it's unconditional. And it's through the promise to Abraham that we eventually, generations later, through our encounter with Jesus, as Clara read to us, who was another one like Moses, was an outsider without a permanent home. One of the most fascinating classes that I took in seminary was, a, was one of those classes that I thought I would dread. It was a class on the early church. Now, we all know that most classes, it's less the content and more the teacher or the professor that make the class interesting. And this class was no, was no exception to that rule. Alan Kreider was the teacher, and he made the early church come so alive that I actually wished I could have been a part of it. You see, the early church was when Christians were still being persecuted for being followers of Christ. And yet, as we often hear about churches that are being persecuted, their church grew by leaps and bounds. It's estimated in the year 239 that 1.4% of the population, 1.4% of the population of the Greco-Roman world was Christian. And by 1313, that's just 74 years later, 16.2% of the population was now considered Christian a growth of almost 15% of the population in less than 75 years. No wonder Constantine became interested in Christianity. He had to in order to connect with his people. And the growth of the early church is something that's remarkable. The growth of this pre-Christendom church when it was still illegal to be a Christian took place amidst all of these imposing disincentives. They were put to death. Their houses were burned down. They often got job demotions if it was found out. In fact, one reading said, if you wanted a soft life or to get ahead in respectable circles, you did not become a Christian. And yet this church was growing and growing and growing. Why was it growing? They weren't having public preachers out on the sidewalk. They weren't giving out tracts. 
They didn't pray regularly for the conversion of pagans, and they didn't organize themselves for mission. In fact, there was no call to evangelism in any of the early writings of the early church. They also did not allow outsiders, or what they called pagans, to join their worship services. Their doors were closed. They had bouncers at the door who would not let people in. The only way that you could get in was to go through a two or three year catechism. Two or three years of catechism to join this group. And yet people were coming and wanting to do it, to sign up to be a part of this. Now Alan Kreider proposes that there was a connection between worship. And even though the worship wasn't allowing the outsiders to come in, there was a connection between worship and evangelism. Even though these people weren't out evangelizing. Worship was important because it was not only attract, it was not attractive, but because what they did in worship made a difference in the lives of the people outside of worship. People who attended these churches became distinctive in their communities. They lived in ways that were recognized as followers of Jesus. And these people were attractive because of their new sense of freedom and their new way of life. In Christ, they were alive. And people would say, why do you live like that? And then the opportunity to evangelize would come out. But it wasn't initiated by the Christian. When I was in graduate school at Penn State, I had a professor who I worked very closely with. I was her uh, research assistant for a couple of years. And one summer, I worked full time for her in her office. So I got to know her very well. She actually wasn't much older than I was at the time. And she didn't always live a life that I would have lived at the time. We'll put it that way. She was living with her boyfriend, um, whom had left his wife to come live with her and other aspects of life. But we didn't talk about that much. We talked about other things. And we talked a lot when I was there. And one day, as I was leaning over her filing cabinet, Dr. Messman turned to me and she said, I wish I could do it like you do it. And I said, what, file? <laughs> and she said, no, live. And how surprising to hear this professor in graduate school say, I wish I could live like you live. I said, what do you mean? And she said, that Christian faith, you take it so seriously. You actually live it. I so rarely see people living it. Well, I was so shocked by her comments that all I said was, you could do it too. And she said, no, I, I, I don't think I ever could. And I didn't take the next step. I didn't invite her more often to church. I didn't invite her to more often engage in conversation about what it means to be a Christian. She was doing exactly what people did in the early church to me, and I missed the opportunity to go the next step. What was it that was so attractive about these new Christians? Alan Kreider said, in an unsettled world, the Christians seemed to advocate and incarnate approaches to living that were both novel and comprehensible. You see, they expressed new ideas that they were learning in church in symbolic 
and social language that was incredibly familiar to the people. And they addressed the people's questions and the people's struggles in that world. They adapted the news of the gospel to connect to the culture at hand. Otherwise, their movement would have died very, very quickly. In a way, these early Christians lived in two different worlds, somewhat like Moses. They lived in the functioning world of the Greco-Roman era where they had to work and eat and play and live. And yet they also lived very much in the Christian world in which they worshipped and behaved differently. They were at home everywhere and fully at home nowhere. The Christians believed that because of their life in Christ, they were living in a distinctive way that had global and salvation historical importance. These Christians, which appeared to be so marginal, had a self-confidence that was so attractive to the outsiders that people wanted to come and join because they believed that they were instruments that God was using to construct the new world. Pagans noticed the lifestyle choices that were different. They showed... Christians showed unusual patience with others. They watched how Christians did business with other people. And they saw and experienced their ability to listen and be attentive to their questions. I wonder if Moses and the early church believers have something key to teach us. Are we to be called resident aliens? a term that the early church often used to identify themselves. You'll see that often in the, in the scriptures, the idea of resident alien. We even saw it in Moses' in Moses's scripture read this morning. How do we live in this world and yet not fully at home in this world? What does that mean for me? I mean, I sit at home sometimes and I watch TV. I'll go to the movies and watch movies. I will participate in social activities around me. Is my life really that different from those in my neighborhood? Do my actions lead others to wonder, why is she different? Do I control my desire to gossip when I know it isn't right? Do I offer help to those in need, even if I'm not sure of the legitimacy of their need? Am I honest when I receive extra change from a cashier? Do I put my giving to the church and other charities first, pay my bills second, and then buy those things that I want third? Do I allow my generosity to God be primary in my life? Do I recognize the vices in my life, the overconsumption of food, my viewing of pornography, laziness, greed, lying, Allowing anger to turn to violence. Any of those sound familiar? In school, do I let my eyes slip to my neighbor's paper during a difficult exam just for a second to see her answer on the question that I'm stumped on? Do I deny my role in an activity when accused, even when I was an active participant? The role of resident alien seems foreign to us today. It's often a term we associate with those who are immigrating or are non-US born people. 
what do we do with the idea that we are called to be resident aliens here? Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see God constantly putting people in places outside of their comfort zones, calling us to be present where we are, offering justice to people in need, and forcing us to redefine what it means to be home. What would that look like if we were to do that more in worship? What would that mean? Well, it might mean sitting in new places. It might be sitting beside new people. It might be singing different songs, more variety of songs. It might mean welcoming visitors as your first priority on a Sunday morning rather than going and talking to the people you know and feel most comfortable with. It might mean not being so judgmental of others' approaches to worship and allowing ourselves to be less judgmental of those who participate in our worship. I had to think about Monday night community meals, too. I will confess that sometimes it's hard to go to Monday night meals because I don't know who I'm going to sit with. And I know that I shouldn't sit with people from East Chestnut Street, that I should sit with community folks. I mean, after all, we're hosting them here. It's easy to sit with the people you feel comfortable. But we need to force ourselves outside of our comfort levels, outside of our homes. I have found when I go and sit with community folks, they are actually some of the most kind, interesting people. Come on Monday night. Come any Monday night. Go out of your comfort zone. Ask them questions. Sit down. Just introduce yourself. I'll guarantee you that they'll introduce themselves back. Ask them if they grew up in Lancaster or where they're from. That's going to open up a whole story right there. Ask them if they're keeping cool this summer or how they're keeping cool. You will get lots of talk, lots of communication. I find myself stretched at times to think about the role of resident alien. Why does God not want us to feel comfortable at home, to find the posh lifestyle, the comfortable surroundings that we should have? It surely is no coincidence that the Jews' future liberator is raised as an Egyptian prince. He lived a very comfortable lifestyle growing up, I'm sure. Had Moses grown up in slavery with his fellow Hebrews, he probably would not have developed the pride, the vision, and the courage to lead a revolt. When we find ourselves in a new surrounding, whether in worship, in our neighborhoods, or with dinner guests, God is inviting us. In fact, God is allowing us to be bearers of the good news to all people. God is allowing us to be resident aliens. Our evangelism may have less to do with sharing the specific message of the gospel immediately, but more to do with allowing others to see the gospel at work within us, and then pointing the way with further actions and words to Christ, showing them that this world is not our final home at all. Amen.